Good morning, everybody. I want to invite you all to turn to Galatians chapter 5 this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 7 to 15 in that chapter. While you're turning over there, I wonder if you might indulge me for a moment for a little church history anecdote brought to you by yours truly. Did you know that, uh, that October 31st is not only a beloved American tradition, uh, traditional uh, time for swapping candy for free, dressing up in ridiculous costumes, going to a complete stranger's house and asking them for things. There's actually another reason that that day is noteworthy. It's actually a really important day in the history of Christianity. It's a day that's often called Reformation Day by those of us who are interested in those things. And that's because on that day, October 31st, a man named Martin Luther, living in the 1500s, specifically 1517, lodged a formal and public protest against abuses that were occurring in the church at the time, the church that he had grown up in, that had groomed him and taught him who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. Abuses that he had come to recognize because of his study of God's word. Because he had come to see the gospel was different than what he had been taught. Luther, the reason I'm bringing up Luther this morning and want to talk to you about him for a couple of minutes here is that what he went through uh, it was, it is, is directly relevant to what we're learning about in Galatians right now. The section that we're in, in chapters 4 and 5, gets straight to the heart of what Luther learned by God's grace in his own life and what he helped to clarify for those of us who've come after him and what I want to put on your radar so that we can make the most of our time in Galatians chapter 5 this morning. So one of the things that defined Luther's life before this big moment, this Reformation Day event that I've talked about, one of the things that defined his life before that time was insecurity. He had made a pledge in a moment of fear that if God would preserve his life from a terrible storm, he would go and become a monk. And he did that. Joined a monastery and threw himself into the quest laid out in front of him by his teachers to reach salvation. But he was tormented the whole time by insecurity. He was told that that his salvation would depend in part on what he did. That though it would also depend on God's grace, God's grace was there for the taking only if you responded to or initiated towards God with the things that the church called you to do. Think of God's grace as a kind of currency that's offered to you in payment for things that you do to earn it. So he did everything he possibly could to earn more credit. He attended multiple worship services every day. They started at 2 a.m. He would rise at 2 to make sure that he could get in the number of services that he, that he wanted to. He repeated prayers throughout the day. He meditated long and hard on the scriptures. He beat up his body through fasting, through long, cold nights without blankets. All these were punishments he willingly put on himself, hoping that through them he could offset the sins that he'd committed and somehow find peace. Here's another example. I like this one. This brings it home. Because, because he believed and had been taught that only sins that he confessed to a confessor would actually be forgiven, he was obsessed that he might miss something, that he might forget to confess something and then be condemned for it later. Here's how one historian put it. He would confess, quote, for hours, walk away, then come rushing back with some little foible he'd forgotten to mention. So much so, it got, the, it got so bad that, that a confessor supposedly said to him, this is a quote, look here, Brother Martin, If you're going to confess so much, why don't you go do something worth confessing? Kill your mother or father, for crying out loud. I added the, uh, for crying out loud. Quit coming in here with such flumery and fake sins, end quote. 
And it wasn't just that he worried he hadn't confessed anything. He worried, too, that he hadn't confessed with the right heart motive. So that even if he comprehensively detailed every single sin he'd ever committed, if he didn't describe the heart motive that led him to it, that that was a sin unconfessed. He was was in bondage. He was a mess. He was hating himself, and he was terrified of God. Things began to change for him when he started preparing and teaching, teaching lessons from the scriptures. This was part of his job. He'd taken a job after his training as a professor at a university in a German town called Wittenberg. And part of his job was to teach daily lessons from the scriptures. Some of the most formative lessons from the scriptures that he prepared and taught to his people were from Galatians. It was wrestling with the letter that we're studying together now. That God began to open Luther's eyes to the very different gospel taught there to the gospel of of freedom that that doesn't ask you to earn favors from God but promises a free gift of righteousness to anyone who claims it by faith. It was through Galatians and and other letters like, like Romans that Luther began to see new things in the Bible and to recognize this message is about God's grace and a different understanding of grace than the one he'd been living with. Looking back on that time Years later, Luther recalled that it was, it was actually studying Romans 1 that brought all these insights together for him. There he read that, the, that, the, that Paul is not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to anyone who believes. For in it, Paul writes, the righteousness of God is revealed. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. What Luther realized as he studied this passage with Galatians as his backdrop, is that this righteousness that Paul writes of, the one that comes by faith and not by anything that we do, is not a righteousness to be earned, but a righteousness to be received. It's a righteousness that belongs to God. It's a righteousness from God that's given to all those who trust in him rather than in themselves. Now he saw that grace as a gift given once and for all when we believe This new understanding of what the gospel is raised a crucial question for Luther. And it's the question I think Paul is answering at this point in the letter. So up until this point in the letter, Paul's been talking about this gospel that was so uh, transformative for Luther, and I pray for you too. A gospel of grace and not works. A gospel of free offer for forgiveness to all who turn to him. That's what Paul's been talking about through Galatians. But now he's taking a turn from what we receive from God as a gift to the kinds of changes that come out in our life once we've received it. Paul often makes this change in his letters and it's, 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 a, it's a shift that, that we're going to start talking about in, in depth today. There's a question that's raised for us. If we see the righteousness that we need to have lives that are right before God as something we don't have to earn, we don't have to prove anything, we just have to accept this gift from God, then what are our lives for? If they're not for justifying ourselves, what are they for? So now what? When you don't have to spend your life padding your resume, doing all you can to justify yourself, what's your life for? That's a question that Luther took up in one of his first practical writings that he wrote for uh, more uneducated readers, not not fighting back and forth with theologians like himself that are teaching at seminaries, but with, with readers from his church who would have had not only no theological education, but probably no education at all. He wrote a series of pamphlets to try to help get this message to them in ways that would help them. 
And one of the first ones that he wrote was called The Freedom of a Christian. At the heart of this pamphlet, he took up this question. If your life is not for justifying yourself, for earning righteousness, what's it for? What do you do with it? And this was his answer. What should a person who's claimed this faith think now? This is a quote from Luther. He ought to think, Although I am an unworthy and condemned man, my God has given me in Christ all the riches of righteousness and salvation without any merit on my part, out of pure, free mercy, so that from now on I need nothing except faith which believes that this is true. Why? Should I not therefore freely and joyfully with all my heart, with an eager will, do all the things which I know are pleasing and acceptable to such a father who has overwhelmed me with his riches? What does that look like? Luther continues. I will therefore give myself as a Christ to my neighbor, just as Christ offered himself to me. I will do nothing in this life except what I see is necessary, profitable, and salutary to my neighbor. Since through faith, I have an abundance of all good things in Christ. Behold, from faith thus flow forth love and joy in the Lord. And from love, a joyful, willing, free mind that serves one's neighbor willingly and takes no account of gratitude or ingratitude, of praise or blame, of gain or loss. For a man doesn't serve that he may put men under obligations. He doesn't distinguish between friends and enemies or anticipate their thankfulness or unthankfulness. But he most freely and most willingly spends himself and all that he has, whether he wastes all on the thankless or whether he gains a reward. I hope you'll excuse the, the language that's awfully formal and, and, and different from the way we speak now. And I hope you can get through that language, the beauty and power in what Luther's trying to put on our radar. When your life doesn't have to be about you, we don't have to worry about whether or not you'll measure up. You're set free not to save up, not to pad your account of righteousness, but to spend yourself down for your neighbor. And that's the point that Paul makes in the part of his letter that we're going to look at this morning. This is Paul's theme. You have been set free so that you get to love. What I want to do this morning is spend almost all of our time remaining in verses 13 to 15. I'm going to read starting in verse 7. There's some important context there and some very colorful language that I think you'll enjoy. Um, I think you'll also get the point really quickly. And what I want to drill down on is what it builds to and what Paul wants to encourage us with in verses 13 to 15. What I think you'll see as I read through this and where we're going to spend our time this morning is two different contrasts that Paul draws in these verses. There's a setup in verse 13. What I'm going to call the two paths that Paul puts in front of us. There is freedom that is an opportunity for the flesh and freedom that is an opportunity to, through love, serve one another. And then in verses 14 and 15, what I see is another contrast between what it looks like when people love their neighbors as themselves and what it looks like when you use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. That comes out in verse 14 and then verse 15, respectively. What we're going to look at this morning are two different paths, two different destinations, and the power to choose love. 
two different paths, two different destinations, and the power to choose love. I'm going to ask you now to stand with me in honor of God's word as I pick up from verse 7 and read to the end of verse 15. This is the word of the Lord to us. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. This is God's word. You can be seated. Two different paths. Paul puts in front of us in verse 13. Verses 7 to 12 that I began with uh, are, are something of a digression. You know, he's talking about freedom, and especially about the freedom to love in verse 6 of chapter 5. He picks right back up there in verse 13 of chapter 5. In between, he jumps around a lot. He gets super personal and even aggressive. It, it, it reads like what one writer summed up as, quote, snorts of indignation, end quote. I like that. That's basically what it sounds like, isn't it? Snorts of indignation. I'm guessing you got his point easily enough, though. And it's a point I'm going to come back to here in a bit. There is only one gospel. Those who would dissuade you from it not only hurt you, but bring penalty on themselves. This is serious business. So get rid of them. We'll come back to that here in a bit. For now, I want to focus on verse 13. It opens with this call to freedom. Same thing he used at the top of the chapter in verse 1. But it's not enough to just talk about freedom. Freedom can mean a lot of different things to different people. What matters is not that we're talking about freedom here, but what kind of freedom we're talking about. That's why in verse 13, Paul introduces the first contrast I want to make sure you notice. Two different paths that he lays out in this verse. Path number one, think of that one as the freedom, using freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Don't do that. You don't want that path. It leads nowhere good. You'll see that in a minute. Path number two, freedom as an opportunity to serve through love. That's the path you want, the true freedom of the gospel. That's the freedom of the Christian. That's what Paul calls us to. I want to make sure you understand what he means by both of these two paths before we look at where they lead. Path number one, he refers to as an opportunity for the flesh. That's loaded language for Paul. For Paul, flesh is a word he uses for human nature apart from the influence of God's grace and mercy. It's, it's a word for our default mode, for our base level desires. Think of the flesh as you being you or me being me without any restriction or any restraint or any redirection. To use freedom as an opportunity for the flesh would be to say basically, All right, look, God already gives me everything I need to be right before him, so check, that's done. Now my life is my own. I'll just go be me. I'll do whatever I want. I'll assess what I want, I'll assess what I need, I'll do my best to be as happy as I can be. 
Now, clearly for Paul, that, that flesh is a pejorative term, but, but maybe, maybe also you can tell. If you take the pejorative edge off of it, even just the way I just described it, I hope will sound pretty familiar to you as one of the most common paths of freedom celebrated uh, and, and that each one of us in our heart is going to be drawn to. This kind of freedom to just be you is not looked down upon, but, but elevated, celebrated, and affirmed in our culture. And, and honestly, in, in, a, in our hearts, we're always going to be drawn to it. So long as we don't hurt anyone else, so long as we don't restrict someone else's freedom in some way, we're told and tempted to believe that we ought to be free to be us. But Paul is telling us that's one way to misunderstand the freedom of the gospel. That's one path. He wants us to take another one. So what does it mean to use your freedom as an opportunity to serve through love? That's the alternative in verse 13. It's clearly the one he wants them to take up. And he backs it up in verse 14 by a, a quote from the law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The whole law, he says, is fulfilled. It's summed up in that one command. Now that is, I, I, I hope familiarity with that line won't keep you from recognizing how radical this alternative is to the most popular, prominent version of freedom that we live with. Because Here's what makes it so radical, friends. The version of freedom I laid out a moment ago, the one that we're going to be drawn to, the one that's celebrated around us, that's a version in freedom in which your responsibility to others is defined only negatively. Do no harm. Don't hurt. Don't restrict. Don't hold back. Otherwise, you be you. And that's helpful. The do no harm principle is a good one. I mean, if you don't want to drive on an interstate that has people texting while they drive next to you, it's, it's nice for you not to text while you drive down 440 under road construction. And I'm going to assume the best about all of you. You don't do such things. The do-no-harm principle is helpful so far as it goes. But what Paul is saying goes, goes way further than that. He's calling us not just to keep from restricting others, keep from hurting others, but otherwise you go do you. No, he's saying you leverage everything you have and you aim everything you are at the needs of the people around you. You're supposed to love them, in other words, like you love yourself. And boy, do we love ourselves. I mean, the law just assumes we do. It's not even really challenging this kind of self-love. This is not even the kind of self-love that's dangerous to you. I mean, it, it can grow into that, but there's a, a, at one level, we're just all always going to be really sensitive to our needs and do what we can to meet them. It's not even wrong to do. There's a kind of self-love that's just basic. And, and Paul and the law before him is just calling on that attention that we normally give to ourselves and saying, channel that to everybody else. Think about the attention you've paid to yourself even this morning. Chances are when you woke up, you needed a little pick-me-up. So maybe you, you splashed some water on your face or you made some coffee and you drank it to get that little caffeine boost. I bet you also woke up hungry. So maybe you went to the cabinet like I did and pulled out a box of cereal, poured a bowl. You added milk because you prefer it not to be dry. It's better with milk. Maybe you drink orange juice. That's how you wake up in the morning. One way or another, like you know what you need and you, and you, and you did it. You probably also checked your your phone to see what the weather was like, maybe realize, oh, it's unseasonably cold out. So you chose to wear you know, a thicker sweater. I mean, if you look great in your fall sweaters today, congratulations, I look awesome. 
You, you, you chose a thick sweater because you, you didn't want to be cold when you got outside. You probably got into your vehicle and turned on the heater so that at least part of your drive here would be comfortable with, with air-conditioned heat blowing right in your face. From here, you're probably going to be hungry, maybe even a little sleepy after you get done with this sermon. Am I right? You're probably going to leave from here and, and go get something to eat, maybe with your friends at your favorite restaurant because you know what you like and there's a lot of good choices out there. Maybe then it's going to be an afternoon nap for you. So you'll turn down the lights, you'll lay down in a comfortable place and you'll get what you can. The point is that, that we're, all, we're all going to be relentlessly inevitably focused on what we need and we're going to do what we can to be attentive to meeting our needs we don't have to challenge that to also see the the call that paul has built in to using the law here in this spot your freedom now the freedom that you've been given not to use all your time and energy and stress trying to justify yourself now you're supposed to channel into serving others through love with the same relentless detail focused attention that you give to your own self that's the other path and it's a radical path indeed use your freedom to shift your focus from pleasing yourself to serving others those are two different paths Paul lays out now I want to make sure you notice the two different destinations that these paths lead to that's a contrast that I see in verses 14 and 15 I want to start with verse 15 because this is where the the contrast is most clear. I think it's more subtle in verse 14. In verse 15, he warns them, if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. I think what what he's saying there, given this context, is that if you use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh... If you basically just use your freedom as, a, as, a, as, as free reign to go and do and be whatever you want to do, go and do and be, that, that do-no-harm principle only holds you back for so long. Because ultimately, if everybody else is doing just what you're doing, if everybody's just using the freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, and if that means just being you as you are with no restraint, no redirection, no nothing, then, then, then you're eventually going to run into somebody who's being as self-focused as you are. There's going to be a clash and, there won't, and only one can survive. He's saying you'll bite one another and eventually you'll devour one another. Freedom to be you. I, it, it, you're, you're kidding yourself if you think your interests pursued in an unrestrained way are going to flow like a, just a nice, exactly parallel line with someone else's interests just doing themselves. No, they're never parallel. At one level, at one point or another, they're going to crash. And what will happen is that your community will be consumed by conflict. That's one destination. But verse 14 points us to another alternative. I've said I think it's, uh, I think it's subtle. I think it's built in here. But I think he's meaning to in verses 14 and 15, give us two separate ways, two separate destinations, rather, that these ways lead to. Imagine if everyone was loving their neighbor as they loved themselves. Imagine if their freedom were given to that kind of relentless attention to the needs of others. Imagine if they used the freedom not to focus on themselves, to serve instead. What kind of community would that be? What kind of experience would you have of your own life what happens when your freedom binds you to the needs of others 
two things happen. First, you begin to be less focused on the needs that you have that otherwise might discourage you. And that shift, friends, will bring you joy. Here's what I mean. To to whatever extent you choose to focus on your own needs and desires, to whatever extent you choose to use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, to that extent, community is going to be very, very difficult for you. Because here's the reality. Nobody out there is going to be able to pay as close attention to you as you pay to you. No one out there will see everything that you see about yourself. And no one out there could have the same resilience as you have in pursuing you. So if you're the standard by which you judge their interest in you, you'll always be disappointed in your friends because they will never catch up. But if you choose to focus on their needs and therefore become less focused on your own, there's a freedom in that. Listen how Bonhoeffer describes this in The Cost of Discipleship. He says, we need only reverse the I and the you in the relationship. We need only put ourselves in the other's place and the other in our own. See, when you reverse the I and the you as this love your neighbor as yourself command calls us to, then the list of things you wish you were getting from others become your list of ways you can serve them. Think about it. Let's say your friends don't seem to understand you. Reversing the I and the you, the question becomes, well, how hard am I working to understand them? Think perhaps your, your friends aren't showing the interest you wish they would in the details of your life. Then the question becomes, how often am I asking with genuine interest about their lives? Maybe your friends aren't checking in with you as regularly as you wish they would. How often are you checking in with them? You get the idea. Basically, put on paper a frustration you're having with your friends. And this call offers you an opportunity to reverse the I and the you from a deficit you experience from them to an opportunity you have to serve. I don't, I don't mean to say that doing that immediately transforms your experience of community, but working at that, doing that, using your freedom as an opportunity to love your neighbor as yourself, oh, it will over time. It will change you, and it will set you free. That's what Paul's talking about. This is a freedom you can know from a posture towards others that's only ever brought you frustration and never joy. That's the first thing that'll happen. If you, if you reverse the I and the you, that's what will happen. Here's the second thing that will happen. Maybe this is an irony, I don't know. But the second thing that'll happen is that you'll begin to have your needs met more fully than you could have ever secured on your own. If you bow out of the game of using freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, pursuing what you think you need on your terms, and trying to help others get others to to help you out with that. You are not going to have your needs met as well as they would be if you're part of a community where everyone is looking not to their own interests but also to the interests of others. Here's a way a friend put it. Let's say you're part of a group of 10 people on some sort of team. Everybody comes into their team meeting thinking of themselves first and in any given situation, how many people are thinking of you? One. 
You, you are thinking of you. But if, but if you're on a team where everyone comes in thinking of others before they think of themselves, how many people do you have thinking of you? You've got nine people thinking of you, at least. Probably ten, because you're also thinking of you. And the, and the reality is that in dying to yourself, God gives you what you need. In not being the one to do quality control on what you need, God meets your needs through your friends in a way you never could have imagined. In taking yourself out of that seat and choosing the posture of service through love, your needs get met in a way you could never have made sure would happen on your own. Those are two radically different destinations for these two radically different paths. And it builds the question I want to end on. How can I know that this is what will happen? Because this sounds risky. How can I set aside advocating for me and instead choose serving others in love? Because isn't there a chance that that I'll go in on this but the others around me won't? That maybe I'll just spin my wheels trying to serve them, serve them, serve them, meanwhile draining my tank completely and being left depleted and alone. Where do we get the power to choose love despite the risks that this kind of love legitimately bring to your life? Only through the power of the gospel. It is the only power to choose love. It's the only resource that can free you to give yourself away like this. And that's one reason Paul uses the extreme language he uses in verses 7 to 12. I told you I was going to come back to that. I mean, the reason Paul is going to the mattresses in these verses, the reason he is laying everything on the line and saying it's either or, don't give these guys even a second. The reason he's saying he wishes they would even emasculate themselves. Yes, I noticed that that was there. The reason that those stakes are what they are for Paul is that getting the gospel right is the key to getting the freedom you need to love like this. You can't get to this kind of community if you don't have the gospel. That's what Paul believes. The stakes are a lot higher than just switching political parties or favorite philosophers or a smartphone operating system. There is literally, for Paul and for us, no hope outside of this gospel and no power to love others in this way. What is it about the gospel that Paul's fighting for here that gives us the power to choose love? Only in the gospel do we find a power that both humbles us and heals us. Only in the gospel do we have a power that both humbles us and heals us so that we can love one another as we love ourselves. Let me tell you what I mean. The risk, of, the risk that I think is on Paul's mind in this other gospel, this false gospel that these teachers have brought in, the one that he's calling out in verses 7 to 12, is that their gospel flatters their hearers. If you've been with us in the series, you know that in a previous chapter, that he specifically said that. They basically just tickle your ears. They tell you what you want to hear. They tell you, you got this. You can handle it. The law, that's no problem. You can fulfill this law. They puff them up, Paul said. And when you're puffed up, you're going to have a hard time loving others. When you're puffed up, it's going to be hard for you to consider others to be more important than yourself. Their gospel inflates the ego that kills this kind of love. But Paul's gospel, well, he mentions it himself in, verse, in verses 11, and, uh, verse 11 in particular. He mentions the offense of the cross. That's why he's being persecuted. Paul's gospel humbles us. 
Because what he tells us, what he tells us is that we are so far gone on our own, the only solution, the only way we get to stand before God is if God, in the person of his son, empties himself to give us what we could never provide. It's hard to consider others as more important than yourself until you've seen what it costs Jesus to love you. Until you recognize how low you are apart from Jesus. Because when you had nothing to offer and nowhere else to turn, Christ emptied himself so you could be full. That's what Paul's gospel teaches. He gave up his life so you could live. He rose again so that you could rise with him. When you had nothing, you were made rich. Because when he was rich, he made himself poor. That's a humbling gospel that puts us in our place and makes it possible for us to pay attention not just to our needs as, this, as if we were the center of the universe but to the needs of others. And this same gospel that humbles us, friends, also heals us. It offers a security that you can't get anywhere else. It is risky to take the initiative in love like this because maybe your friends won't actually respond in kind and be as attentive to your needs as you are to theirs. That's possible. That happens. Where are you going to get the power you need, the security you need to take that risk? Only from a gospel that says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That means our sin can't scare him away. That means we don't have to keep earning his love like some sort of monthly subscription with a premium to pay. And that message of hope, even as it humbles us, heals us and sets us free to love because that message gives us the promise of a father. Paul's favorite theme besides this gospel we've been talking about and built into this gospel is that through the Spirit now you cry out, Abba, Father. You have an intimacy and a protection and a provision through this relationship you've never had before that you can't get anywhere else. And when you know you have a Father, you have a place of security towards your own needs that frees you to turn your attention to the needs of other people. You can be attentive to their needs rather than your own only because you know you've got a father who is attentive to your needs with more wisdom than you could ever have, with a, a, a pure love more pure than you have ever had, with more power than you could ever have. So your own attention to your needs compared to his attention to your needs, what's well, a drop of water in an ocean and then some? It's nothing compared to the privilege of crying out, Abba, Father, and knowing he sees, knowing he provides knowing he will never let you go. The only power to choose this love is a power that comes from a gospel that humbles us, then heals us, and overall sets us free so that we get to live lives that serve through love. I'm going to pray that God will continue to do this work for us. Father, thank you for the evidence of your love that I see in my friends in this room and the way that they care for each other and pursue each other. We trust that your spirit is bearing fruit in us. That's the only hope we have because we know how much selfishness there is still in us, how much more likely we are on our own to focus on our own needs and not the needs of our neighbors. So we pray that the same spirit that's working in us now by your word would continue to work. We pray that our community would be known for its love that it would be surprising to us and to others who see us and know us that our love looks the way that it does. And we pray that you would help us to glorify you as the one who is doing every good work that's seen here. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.